Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Psalms 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's how this psalm starts. Praise the Lord. And that word in Hebrew is hallelujah, which means the highest praise. Not just medium praise. That's the word hallel. Not just a lot of praise. Hallelujah. The highest praise to God. In fact, the beginning part of that word is what these psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, are called in the Hebrew Bible. They're called the Egyptian hallel, which is a hallelujah to God, for delivering the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And in fact, they would say these psalms all the time. A lot of Jews would say them on the Sabbath to remember that they were resting because God had brought them into a place of rest. But every Jew would say these psalms before the Passover. In fact, we know that Jesus sang this psalm, and all the way through to 118, the night before he was betrayed, the day before he went to the cross, these words, praise the Lord, were on his lips. And this morning, I want to talk about a life of praise. Very simple idea this morning. What would it look like for us to have lives that were filled with the highest praise? To have a hallelujah kind of heart? To have a soul that constantly praises and worships God? What would your life look like if at the very center of your life was worship and praise? You know, we want our church to be known for a lot of things. We want to be known as a praying church, as a serving church, as a loving church. We want to be known as a church that loves the Word of God. But if we could be anything before we were those things, we would have to be a church of praise, a church of worship. Now, here's why. Most of the time when we think of worship, we think of singing, right? Worship is sometimes what we even call what we're doing right now. We worship on Sunday mornings. We have a worship service. We come and we sing. But singing is just one part of worship because worship is actually a condition of the heart. It's a responsiveness of the heart. It's like, do you remember when you were a kid and you were breaking in a baseball mitt for the first time? Does anybody remember this? When you get one of those things, it is, it is the stiffest most unresponsive leather. And everybody has their own little thing, whether you sleep, under, sleep with it under your pillow, you got the rubber band trick that people do, you got newspaper that you stuff in there. Everybody's got their own way, but the point of breaking in a baseball glove is that when you move, it would move. When you open your hand, it would open. When you, respond, when you act, it would respond to what you want it to do. And so our hearts are... Our goal is to be responsive to what God is doing. A life of worship is not just that you come to church and sing. It's that you are conditioned and softened and molded so that you can respond to what God is doing in your heart. You're sensitive 
You're reactive, you're watching and waiting, giving glory to God in your life. In fact, similar to that, I had ordered a pair of red wing boots several years ago because all my friends had said these are the coolest, most comfortable boots. And I thought, okay, well, I got to get a pair of these. So I order a pair of red wing boots, and they get delayed, they get delayed, they get delayed, and we're getting ready to go on a trip to London. And I was like, this is going to be perfect. I'll have these really comfortable boots. I'll wear them all around London. I'm going to look so steampunk and hipster. It's going to be great. And uh, they come the day before we leave. So I just throw them in the box in my carry-on. I don't even take them out. And I bring one other pair of shoes. And I'm wearing these things around London. And after about an hour, I mean, we're doing like 20,000 steps a day. After about an hour in these, my feet are killing me. I've got blisters, I've got sore spots, I've got pain in my feet I never knew could even exist. And so I'm rotating them every other day, and I'm trying to get them broken in. And the craziest thing about it was when I came back, my feet were miserably sore. I mean, so sore. I wore nothing but like flip-flops for a couple of weeks afterwards. But you know what? The next time I put those boots on, they were so comfortable. Because 20,000 steps for two weeks in England translates to leather that has been broken down and molded to what fills it. The problem with an unworn pair of boots is it's not molded to anything. It's just in the shape that it comes from the factory. But the benefit of putting leather conditioner on there and sweating in them and walking in them and breaking them in is now that leather is tailor-made to what has been filling it. And the life of praise goes the exact same way. It is hard to praise God in seasons of our life. It is difficult to worship God when we don't know what he's doing. It's very hard when we feel like we're at our wit's end, we're exhausted, we've been walking too long with God without any response to praise him. And then the next time you do, it's a little easier. And the next time you do, you're a little more conditioned. And the next time you do, it's a little bit more molded. And so a life of praise begets a life of praise so that our hearts would be perfectly formed. By the time God takes us home, our hearts would be perfectly formed to him filling us. That's what a life of praise looks like. Now, in this psalm, we get praise the Lord at the beginning, and then all the way through the next five psalms, actually, we get reasons to praise God. And one of the reasons we have a hard time living a life of praise, cultivating worship in our hearts, is because we get the order wrong. See, we're tempted to worship God because of what he's done. And that is a great reason to worship God, but it's not the first reason we should worship God. In fact, what this psalm teaches us, if you look at these opening verses, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The name of the Lord is to be praised. We are to praise the Lord. We are to, in verse 2, bless the Lord, not just because of what he's done, but because of who he is, because of what his character is, because of what his nature is. So I want to step back and go through this psalm and talk about the order of our praise. The first thing is, in order to praise God, we have to start with who he is, what his characteristics are, what his nature is, who God is in his essence. So in verse 2, you see the phrase, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be God. And I step back this week because sometimes we get so familiar with these church terms that it just rolls off your tongue, and then you think for a second, you're like, what would it even mean to bless God? 
What would it even mean to, to be a blessing to God? And I looked this term up, and it's used 70 times in the Old Testament in this phrase, bless the Lord. Right, we're comfortable with it in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says in the Greek equivalent, blessed is the person who does this. We're like, oh, that's great. If you are poor in spirit, if you are a peacemaker, if you are doing the things that God designs, sure, we understand what it would be to be blessed in that setting. But this term originates not with us, but with God. Blessed be the Lord. Bless the Lord. Part of your life goal is to bless the Lord. It's a term that means cultivating praise. It means to give thanks for greatness and goodness. It means to speak words of the excellence of something. That's what it means to bless someone. It doesn't mean to give them material gain. It means to take what's good about them and magnify it. And just spend your time talking about it and turning it over and giving examples of it and giving your heart to the greatness of something. So it says, bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore because the name of the Lord is to be praised. Do you ever step back for a moment and just think about who God is? And I don't just mean who Jesus is, the incarnate God. I mean before the creation of the world, what was God like? What was he doing? What is his essence? And the Old Testament, all over the place, gives us glimpses of what God is like even before he created. In fact, the, the way that we're first introduced to God in the Old Testament is as a creator. But when he reveals his name, think about when, when Moses sees him at the burning bush, who does he say that he is? I am that I am. Or I am who I will be is a good translation of the name Yahweh. I am, and that's all I can really say that you would understand about me. See, the nature of God is such that he doesn't need anything. He is so powerful, he is so exalted, he is so self-sufficient that he did not need to create the universe. In fact, he could have existed for all eternity, past and future, without anything else, and it wouldn't have been a detriment to God. He would have been just as joyful, just as powerful, just as loving if he would never have created anything. See, what, what we talk about when we talk about God's essence and his nature is that he is the source of all being. All meaning, all love, all everything resides in God himself. You can never add anything to God. If we continue to think about God's inner life, because he is self-sufficient, He's actually never needed anything. He's never been nervous about anything. He's never been unsure about anything. He's never had to say, let me think about that. He's never had to consider anything in his life. In all of eternity, he's never been worried. He's never thought, how's this going to turn out? He's never thought, if this doesn't happen, then what? He is so all-powerful that he has never had a moment of shadow or turning in his nature. In fact, when we think about that, it's kind of hard for us to think, why do we bless God then? He doesn't need anything. We bless God because of who he is, and we bless God because we need to bless God. Because what God did when he created the universe is he overflowed with the things that are essential to him. So God didn't create the universe so that he could have people. He created the universe so that we could have him. He created the universe so that we could worship him. He created the universe so that there would be something to share his majestic glory and holiness with. 
The reason that we are here is not because God needed us, but so that we can enjoy God forever. Right? If anybody grew up Presbyterian in here, you remember the first answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our life. The reason that God puts you together, blew his spirit into you, the reason that you are alive is to bless God. It's to glorify God. It's to enjoy God forever. And think about the brilliance of the way God created things. It's not like he's a tyrant that's like, I got to have people worship me or else I won't have my ego needs met. Instead, what he did is he created us to glorify him that would be the most joyful life we could live. Isn't that amazing? That the way God designed us, his rules, his laws, his spirit, his sacrifice in the person of Christ is not just because he's an arbitrary dictator. It's because if you do these things, you get in line with the way you were created and you will enjoy the God of the universe forever. So we praise God for that. We praise God for his essence. We praise God for his holiness. Look at this in verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The glory of God and the holiness of God are actually two sides of the same coin. And we think the holiness of God is something that keeps him separate. Right? The holiness of God is something that is unique to God himself. In fact, this, this Hebrew word, kadesh, means separated. It means that we actually, I think, are probably overly familiar with the way we talk about God. He is holy. He is separate. He is unique. He cannot be around sin. He cannot be around us because he is holy. In fact, we like to highlight God's attributes that are a little bit more familiar and this is one of the things that's unfathomable about God. He is infinitely separate and holy, and he is infinitely near and intimate with us. But we like to talk about the intimate part, if we're honest. We love the attributes of God that are drawing near to us. Like, if you ask most people what is God's chief attribute, it would be love. Love, because that's what involves me, is being loved by God. God is love. First John, it doesn't say that God is other things, but actually the Bible does say that he's other things. It says he is light. And in him, there is no darkness. It says that he is just. It says that he is powerful. It says that he is mighty. But in the Hebrew world, if you want to stress something, you repeat it. So instead of saying he is very loving, you would say he is loving, loving. That's how the Hebrews would emphasize something. He is loving, loving. But in fact, you never see them double that attribute. In fact, there's only one attribute that's ever doubled in the Hebrew Bible. And if you want to get really serious, you don't double it, you triple it. If you triple, that's like our great, greater, greatest, right? Their comparative, their superlative is a triple repeat of an attribute. And you know what? There's only one attribute in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that is triple repeated about God. It is his essential attribute. When Isaiah sees the heavens open and the throne room of God, do you remember what they're saying? God is holy, holy, holy. Not God is just, just, just. Not God is loving, 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 although those are true. But at his root, he is holy, holy, holy. 
Do you remember in Revelation when they go into the throne room and there are those strange creatures and it says they are surrounding the throne and for all of eternity past and all of eternity future, do you know what they're saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, you see this triple emphasis on God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. The earth is full of his glory. So his holiness is a separateness. When we say God is holy, three times holy, it means he is unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is so pure, so undefiled, so morally good. In his essence, he is so different than we are that there is no comparison between us and him. But the Bible says that his holiness, his personal holiness, is shown to us in his glory. In his glory. You see the glory of the Lord everywhere. In fact, one of the first times we see it in the Old Testament is when they are building the tabernacle, which we'll talk about in a minute. And when they build the tabernacle, the sign that God is pleased with them is that a cloud comes down and fills it with the glory of the Lord. Do you remember when they're going, when Moses is going up the mountain, it says the glory of the Lord shone on the mountain so that anybody who even got near the mountain would die because he is unapproachable. He is distant. He is pure. He is far away from human beings. So his holiness sets him apart, and his glory is what we see. The word for glory is the word kavod, and it means heaviness. It means weight. It means important. It means that God is so weighty that everything else is caught in his gravity. If space and time were like a sheet, he is at the center and pulling down so far, everything else is moving towards him. His glory means that he is the most substantial thing in the universe. Everything else takes its reference from him. He is the defining point of all existence. And what the Bible says is the goal for all of creation is that the glory of God will fill everything. That all of life, all of creation would be filled with the weight and substance of God. See, when we worship God for his glory, when we give him praise for his glory, what we're doing is acknowledging that the truest thing in our life, the weightiest thing in our life, is God. Giving glory to God means living like our life is oriented around him. Now, you know, we come out of the box with a different orientation. We are oriented like we are the most important thing. In the universe. Like we are the weightiest, we are the center, everything revolves around us. We see from our perspective, and part of what God wants to do in our life, especially as we praise and worship Him, is show us that we are orbiting. We are not in the center. In fact, God is in the center, and we are dependent on Him. So a life of praise changes the entire way we see the world from I am weighty, I am important, I am centered, to God is important. God is weighty. Everything in my life revolves around him. When you understand the character of God, the essence of God, before he's done anything, his distant, holy, glorious nature, you realize we are nothing, and he is everything. That's what it means to start to praise God. As the psalmist says, the Lord is high above all nations. He, his glory is beyond the heavens. There's no one like him. He is seated on high. He looks far down on the heavens 
and the earth. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis? Okay, one of the things I love about this story is the author's having a little bit of fun with the peoples of the earth. So what happens is the peoples of the earth all gather together on the plain of Shinar, and they decide they're going to build a tower to the heavens because they are so important and so technologically advanced that they should be the people who have the highest, most glorious name. And I love what the author says. It says, God comes and looks down to see the tower. Right? This is the greatest achievement of man. And it's like God has to squint a little bit to even see it down there. And then he scatters them everywhere so that they would bring him glory instead of bringing themselves glory. God is high above the earth. If you're going to worship God, you have to realize this aspect of his distance from us. He is holy. He is glorious. So secondly, this, this psalmist wants to show us how we worship. How do we worship? So if we're, if we're comfortable with who we're worshiping, the majestic, glorious God of the universe, how can we worship him? In fact, this is a much more biblical way of thinking about God. In Psalm 24, the key question is, who could possibly ascend the mountain of the Lord? If God is what I just said he is, how could we even have anything to do with him? Do you remember when Isaiah sees that vision and they're chanting, holy, 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 what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, because I am not holy. I am not clean. I cannot draw near. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's, it's not a coincidence that when God shows up, most people that see him fall on the ground like they're dead because he is so overpowering when he appears. So the question for us is, okay, we know that God should be worshiped, but how should we worship him? Does God have anything to say about the how of our worship? And the storyline of scripture is a how to worship God. Think about this. In the Garden of Eden, God is walking among his people. Adam and Eve are there. He's walking. They're worshiping him. They're cultivating the earth, and they have a relationship with him that is unseparated by sin and by distance. But then in Genesis 3, when they sin, they are removed from the presence of God because God is holy, and he cannot be around sin. So what happens is Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, the dwelling place of God, and there is a flaming cherubim standing at the entrance with a sword that points every direction to make sure they don't try to sneak back in to the presence of God. That's not for God's good, okay? That's for their good. Because if they were to approach God in that state, they would die. So the rest of the Bible is God making a way for them to re-enter his presence. And the first thing that they do when he brings his people out of Egypt is they go to the slopes of Mount Sinai and they get the law. Now, the law, for us as Christians, not our favorite part of the Bible. There's a lot more interesting parts of the Bible to read. But if you wade through the law, and I'm talking specifically about the book of Leviticus, what you realize is Leviticus is a map back to God. It is how could a sinner like me possibly approach the holy God of the universe? And I want to bring you through this just for a minute because most of us, when we get bogged down in the book of Leviticus, don't think about the macro picture of what's happening. But what happens in worship in the Old Testament and what happens in worship in the New Testament are almost exactly the same. What happens is you enter from the outside up towards the area where God dwells. And when you get there, you have a mediator, you have a priest who sacrifices something and the blood that is shed starts the entire process. You can't get near, you can't come in the outer gates unless you have a blood sacrifice on your behalf. 
And once the priest has sacrificed this animal, they begin to wash themselves so that they can go before God perfectly clean. And they intercede for us. They have to be a perfect, clean intercessor, sealed by the blood of a sacrifice to go and speak to God on behalf of his people. And then what they do is they take the sacrifice and they burn it on the altar. And they burn up the meat and it turns to smoke and the smoke ascends up to God. And over and over again in in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Exodus it says, and the smoke rises up like an aroma before God. It's a way of going to where he is. It has to be turned to smoke because he is high above us and the smoke goes up and it's like our offering goes up before him to make a way for us to also ascend to him. Once this is done, the priest would come back and they would take part of the meal and they would eat it in the presence of the Lord. And the people who are sacrificing would eat as well. And it would be like, now that we have been able to enter, now that we are where God is, he is providing for us everything we need. And at the end of that, what the priest would do is the priest would raise his hand and he would give a benediction. He would speak words as they leave the presence of God temporarily that they would be blessed and walk in the way that God has designed. Now that doesn't sound that different than what we're doing. Right? We don't need the blood of goats or bulls or birds anymore because when we approach the mountain of God, when we approach the house of God, we have a perfect sacrifice that has been made for us. We actually have the blood of a perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, no spots, no blemishes, the blood that can pay for all sin that has stained us so that we can come into the presence of God. And we also have a high priest who doesn't need to wash anymore because he is perfectly clean and acceptable to go on our behalf before the God of the universe and say, forgive them. He pleads before the Father. He intercedes constantly before the Father as a faithful high priest to say, there with me. And you know what? After that, he comes back to us, and after we have ascended before God in worship, our praise has been transformed up into the heavenly court of God, and we are there. What do we do? We eat together. You know, the communion meal that we celebrate is this same meal. It's this same kind of covenant sacrifice meal where we say to God, you are all we need. You provide our deepest needs. You will sustain us. You will provide for us. We turn away from everything else so that we could be fed by you. And when we're done worshiping, when we're done singing and praising God, we have a benediction. We feast on the word and we're sent out with a benediction. Go with God. The amazing thing about the way we worship is we don't have to come to a tent made by human hands. We don't have to come to a stone temple. God is not confined to a holy space that we can no longer go. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are now a temple of the living God. Your soul is now inhabited by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of God that dwelled on the mercy seat, that one person once a year could go before God. Now that same presence and glory is in you. So when we come here on Sunday mornings to worship, we're worshiping the exact same way they did. Led in by the blood of Christ, cleansed of our sins, praising God, provided for by him, sent out with God to go everywhere we go. God says that's how you worship. That's how you worship me. Draw near with a sacrifice and a priest who's interceding. Feast at my table 
and go and do my will in the world. That's how you live a life of worship. Now, the third thing, if we know who we're worshiping, we know how to worship, the third thing, our favorite thing, why do we worship? Why do we worship? Because the God who dwells in unapproachable holiness, the God who is as far distant as anything in the universe from us, the God who actually we can't even draw near to because we are imperfect, came to earth. You know, in John 1.14 it says, and God became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this, God moved into the neighborhood. He came and lived among us. God now, in the person of Jesus Christ, is as accessible, as close, as approachable as our greatest friend, as a family member. See, this is the thing about God that we worship is he is so distant, but in Christ he is so near. He is closer than a brother. He is closer than a family member. He is closer even than our own skin because he speaks to our soul in the secret place. See, we worship God because at the end of this psalm it says, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And this is the part I don't need to spend any time on because we're so comfortable with this. This is the God of second chances, the God of a family reunion, the God of a savior, the God of turnarounds, the God of when you had no hope has given you hope. This is the God who turns lives around, who turns the world upside down. This is the God who takes your life and you do a 180 and you go back towards him. This is the God who saves you from the worst sin you could possibly imagine. The blood of Christ is sufficient for that. We worship God because of what he's done in our life. Because of who he is, we come to him how he says, and we trust in what he has done for us. That's a life of praise. So let me spend just a couple of minutes talking about how we practically live lives of worship. How do we actually on a daily basis praise God, worship him, become formed to him? Well, the first thing is worship is about your heart. Worship is about your heart. It's not about singing. Singing is great if it's an overflow of your heart. But singing by itself is not worship. And coming to church by itself is not worship. And reading the Bible by itself is not worship. Worship is turning your heart to God, making contact with him. This is why we can worship in every circumstance. You don't have to come to church to worship. We come to church because God calls us to. There's certain things that happen here that can't happen in our own individual lives. But you can worship God anywhere. In fact, you should worship God everywhere. And if you don't worship God outside of here, don't be surprised that when you come here, the worship really doesn't come. Because we are supposed to live lives of worship. In fact, your quiet time in the morning or your Bible reading or your Devo time is not just so that you would be smarter and better at knowing the Bible. It's so that you would connect with God and worship him every day. There's a missionary named George Muller who lived about 150 years ago. And he said, somebody asked him at one point, what's the key to your life? You've been through trials, you've been through disease, you've seen very few converts, and you're still out in the field trying to reach people for God. What is the secret? And he says, my secret is this, every morning when I'm on my knees, I will not get up until my soul is happy in the Lord. My soul is worshiping the Lord. This is why you can worship God in sorrow and in joy is that I am content when my heart is worshiping and singing the praise of God. So worship is about the heart. 
And one of the biggest dangers in the church today, our, our church, but the church more broadly today, is that we've become convinced that worship is an emotional experience. That what you do is you come together and you do certain things with songs and with verbals and with lights and with an experience that gets us to an emotional state where we're ready to worship God. See, this is dangerous because if you can't get to that emotional state, you no longer worship. And actually, worship should be something that's part of every emotion that we experience. Emotions are great. They're a God-given part of our lives, but they're not supposed to be the pilot. They're supposed to be the co-pilot. They're supposed to alert us of certain things that might be going on in our souls. They're, they're a good conversation partner for our soul. Why are you feeling this way? Why is this filling your life? Why is this changing the way that you think about something? Our emotions are something that we worship through, not something we worship from. So you come to church, and if you are on an emotional high and you feel great and it's just so easy to worship, praise God for that. Amen. But if you come to church and you can't get that, you can still worship. You can still worship. You don't have to feel any certain way to praise the God of the universe because worship starts with the heart. Secondly, worship begins at home. Worship begins at home. The church gathering together is a culmination of praise. It's a culmination of worship. Worship actually begins at home. Uh, you know, the Puritans, about 150 years ago, one of the things they were so good at was family worship. And family worship almost sounds like a foreign language today. If you say, are you guys doing family worship? You're like, what? <laughs> you know, what do you mean? Like, do we go to church? No, do you worship in your home? Do you, as parents and as grandparents, set aside specific times to either read the Bible pray, sing together, ask questions, talk about spiritual things with your family? Because family worship is the fuel for a life of worship. Training kids and grandkids and family members that our whole life is praise has to start in the home. The home is like a little church, the Puritans used to say. In fact, your first church family is your family. And you may not have grown up in a family like that. You may say, my family right now is not like that. But what could it be if your family was the place that praise starts? If you just implemented one night a week, we have dinner and we talk about a passage of Scripture. It's going to be awkward. There's going to be resistance. It's not going to feel like it was anything super spiritual. But if you let that go for years at a time, our praise and our worship starts in our homes and our families. So that we grow into what's normal for us is to praise God. That's our normal mode is to be praising God. And that starts in the home. That starts in your family. Third thing, worship is an overflow. Worship is an overflow. So this means that it's not something that you just immediately summon and every time it's exactly the same. See, the Bible says that in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to the Lord in your heart. In Ephesians 5, Paul says almost the same thing. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in songs, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody and singing in your heart. See, what happens is when you start to praise God in your quiet time, when you start to praise God in your home, you'll be amazed at what begins to spill over into the rest of your life. Do you want to be transformed? Are you frustrated that you're dealing with the same sins for years at a time that you've never seen any progress? Maybe the problem is worship. Maybe the problem is a heart that is still hardened to God. Maybe the problem is the worship that you have in your time with God is temperamental. 
Maybe you haven't gotten to the point yet where you are molded to God. And the solution for that is not to try harder. It's not to try and impress God. It's not to try and do things so that God would change you. It's to begin to worship him and bow down before him and see him put something in you that overflows in your life. So worship forms us to the one who fills us. The reason we're here this morning is that we would be changed, that we would be formed, that when God moves, we would react, that when God comes into our heart and calls us to do something, we would, like second nature, respond to God. A life of praise, a life of worship, means that we are so conditioned and so tender and so responsive that God's ways become our ways. And so we lift up our praise to God, not because he needs it, but because we need it, because he loves it, because he deserves it, because he is glorious, and because he is near. He sent his son to die for us, and we praise him for that. Let me pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We lift up our hearts to you, Lord, not just out of joy, but sometimes out of mourning. We praise you. Father, not just when we feel close to you, but when we feel distant from you, we praise you because you are holy and you are glorious. Father, help us as a church to become people of praise, people who worship you no matter what's going on in our lives. Father, help us to be people who are transformed by a vision of you, to see you as we will see you one day face to face. Father, we dwell in your presence because of your son, Jesus. We have no business coming before you without him. So, Father, lift up your name in our hearts this morning. Lift up your glory over all the earth. Fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of your name. Father, we ask you this morning to put your spirit in our hearts. Father, for those of us that know your son, Jesus, your spirit is there. And Father, if there's anybody in here that doesn't, we pray that you would put your spirit in them, open their eyes to see you, that they can approach you, that they can be with you, that we can ascend to your heavenly house where we'll live with you forever. Father, make us worshipers, lovers of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and worship.